God doesn't see us, or we act like we think he can't see us. In fact, there's many times in our lives where we would rather not have God see us in our sin or in our conduct. We also don't want other people to know the bad things that we do, the sinful things that we do. To the point that sometimes we would rather see others suffer than acknowledge or confess our own sin. Let's be honest, it's hard to admit that you're wrong, even over something simple like directions, let alone to confess that you've sinned. Well, that's where we find Jonah tonight in verses 4 through 16. He's on the run, we could say. He has run from the Lord. He's disobeyed the Lord's command. He sinned against the Lord. He doesn't want to bring the message of the Lord to Nineveh, to his enemy. This morning we saw that the book of Jonah is about God's sovereignty, and especially God's sovereignty over salvation. We saw that Jonah was an appointed servant of the Lord. That's the Lord's message that he was carrying. He's going to Nineveh. But he ran from the Lord. Remember, we said that this book isn't just about Jonah. In fact, I've already said it's about God and God's sovereignty. And we're reminded of that here again tonight. That God is sovereign. He hasn't forgotten Jonah. In fact, even this afternoon, as I was thinking through this again, I thought, you know, this passage even speaks to the salvation of God and his sovereignty over it. How can we see that? Well, we see it in the fact that the Lord used a storm to preserve his child and to bring him back to himself. God uses a storm to accomplish his salvation in preserving Jonah. We'll get to that in, cha- in chapter 2, Lord willing, in a couple weeks. But right now, we're going to look at this pursuit. God is chasing Jonah. He's after Jonah, we could say. And he's going to do so with a storm. We're going to break this passage up into four sections. Uh, We could say we're going to break it up around the storm, God's storm. First of all, the storm begins, verses 4 through 5. Second, the storm continues, 6 through 10. Third, the storm worsens, 11 through 13. Fourth, the storm is over, 14 through 15. Well, there in verse 4 we read, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Amos in Amos 4.13 says, For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is in his thoughts, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the, mount, on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Those verses from Amos, or that verse from Amos, declares the sovereignty of God over all creation. 
What Amos declared in words, the people on this boat are going to experience in reality. The text begins by telling us that the Lord hurled a great storm. Now the word here for hurled is the same word used in 1 Samuel 18 verse 11. When Saul picked up a spear or had a spear in his hand and he hurled it at David. And the idea of this word is that there's precision to this. There's intention to this. It's not a random act. God didn't just close his eyes and drop a storm on the Mediterranean Sea. There was a target. We could say there was a bullseye on that sea. It was a particular ship and a particular person in that ship. God had an aim, and he hurled the storm. This is a theme we're going to follow through chapter 1. We'll see this several times. Jonah, in writing this chapter, will use the same word. Another theme, though, in this chapter that we find is the great storm, the mighty storm. As we walk through here, we're going to see that this storm increases all the more. And we might just read that and think, okay, it was a storm. Great. You know, the, the ship was in trouble. They, uh, we're going to break up. In the original Hebrew, it says that the ship thought to break up. It was so intense that the ship was just going to fall to pieces. Let's give us, give us an idea of how bad this actually was. We could... Think of Acts 27, where Paul is in the ship. Think of that great storm. They were in that storm for 14 days. In that story, in Acts, they threw the cargo overboard as well. However, in Jonah 1, what we find is that the storm has barely begun. And the ship is ready to fall to pieces. That's how intense and frightening this storm was. What we see even in this very first verse is that God has sovereignly appointed this storm and its intensity. Notice in verse 5, it says, Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Here we get a further glimpse of the intensity of this storm. These sailors, they're, they're frightened. They are absolutely terrified. It says that they cried out to each their own god. These guys are polytheists. They worship many different gods. You know, people are willing to live without the true god until things get bad. We could say there's, there's no atheists on a falling plane or a sinking ship. They are quick to cry out, oh God, save us. Notice they are willing to lose everything. Their livelihood is on this ship. They're willing to lose it all to save their lives. Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? 
You know, when the shadow of death darkens our day, we quickly realize that all our earthly gain is worthless in comparison to our eternal condition. All the wealth you've accumulated, all the knowledge you've accumulated, perhaps the business you've built, all of that is worthless in light of eternity unless our souls are right with the Lord. And all mankind knows this. Even the so-called atheist, they cannot deny in times and in face of death and peril that there is a God. They know they will stand before him. But what about Jonah? The sailors are running around frantically, hurling their cargo over the side of the boat, crying out each to their own God. Where's Jonah? Well, he's asleep. In fact, he's gone down into the very inner part of the ship and fallen into a very deep sleep. Notice the idea of going down is brought out again. Jonah, he, he's gone down into this ship. In fact, the idea is that he's gone into the very back corner of the ship. He sought out a little corner where nobody would bother him, maybe behind cargo or whatever it was, but he found the most extreme corner of that ship to hide in and to sleep. And you know, for Jonah, up to this point, things may have seemed to go really good. I mean, think about it. God hadn't stopped him on the way to Joppa. And the ship was there. He found a ship and he, he had the money to pay the fare. Everything was just working out splendidly. And now he had even found a nice quiet place where he could just sleep. And what a sleep he was having. The word here that Jonah uses as he writes this account, the account of him sleeping, is only used two other times in the entire Old Testament. The first time is in Genesis 2, when God puts Adam to sleep to remove the rib to make Eve. The next time is in Genesis 15, when Abraham is, is in a deep sleep as God passes through the animal parts. This is a deep sleep that Jonah's in. Perhaps Jonah was even pleased with himself about the way things were going. You know, we can be the same way as Jonah, can't we? Perhaps you've sinned. Well, nothing happened, so you just keep on going. God didn't strike you with lightning. You didn't get run over by a truck. It's not like Nadab and Abihu who got burnt as they entered the tabernacle? Maybe it was that business deal that went so well. You know it wasn't quite honest. Maybe you lied. You got away with it. Perhaps it was just that one look, something you shouldn't have looked at on the screen. You yelled at your kids. 
Nobody did anything about it. Sometimes we think and we live like we can just get away with sin. We sin and we just go lay down at night in bed and go to sleep. May we have a fantastic sleep like Jonah. But Paul in Romans tells us that the patience of God is not meant to encourage us into more sin. Rather, it's meant to turn us from our sins. Just because nothing happens doesn't mean that God doesn't see. We may never forget that God is omnipresent. That means he's everywhere present. Or omniscient, which means that he knows everything, even our own thoughts, as Amos says in 4 verse 13. Jonah is going to learn the hard way that God has not ignored his sin. God has not forgotten Jonah or turned his back on Jonah. We see that the storm, it's going to continue. It's going to press on even harder against Jonah. Verse 6 says that so the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we will not perish. At some point in time, these sailors either remembered, hey, we've got a passenger. Where's he? Or as they were frantically casting out their, hurling their cargo into the sea, they happened to find Jonah. And the captain comes to him and says, what are you doing? There's desperation in their voice. He says, what do you mean, you sleeper? Don't you know? I mean, come on, wake up. You know, the longer we continue in sin, the harder it is for us to be woken up from that sin the more severe the wake-up call has to be. We could say that God is, is about to pull the trigger on the taser to wake Jonah up to what's going on here. The words that Jonah hears from the captain's voice are, Arise! Call! Both these words here in this verse and verse 6 are used by God in verse 2 to commission Jonah to go to Nineveh. If Jonah's conscience was at all working, he would have been reminded of God's call and his disobedience, even though the sailors knew nothing about it. You know, when you come and hear God's word preached on the Lord's Day, pastor not knowing anything about what's gone on in your week, and he's preaching and he places his finger on a particular sin in your life, and you feel as though his words are burning into your heart, don't ignore it. That's the Lord calling you back to himself could be anything. Perhaps it could be a friend speaking to you, not knowing your heart. 
could be a song you hear. The Lord uses many means to call us back to himself. And Jonah would have heard these words. And he should have thought immediately of God's call to him to obey. But Jonah says nothing. He has no word, no repentance. The sailors, understanding that this is no ordinary storm, are left to cast lots. They feel as they have that they have no other choice. Their situation has become so dire, they have to figure out whose fault this is. At this point, you've got to think, did Jonah really think he was going to get away with this? I mean, Jonah would have woken up, he would have heard the captain's words, he would have seen the storm around him, and now the sailors say, hey, let's cast lots. Don't forget, Jonah is a prophet. He would have known the Old Testament. He should have remembered Achan and Achan's sin and how they cast lots to find out Achan. He should have thought of Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Jonah knows God's sovereign. He's a theologian. And Jonah should have seen God's sovereignty written all over this. Jonah is found out. But again, we need to go back and consider Jonah's condition. He had so hardened his heart that he simply could not bring himself to repentance. We can think of other examples in Scripture. Think of David and Uriah. After David stole Uriah's wife Bathsheba, he calls Uriah back, hoping that Uriah would go home and see his wife. And yet Uriah is so honorable that he sleeps in the court of the king, in the courtyard. He won't go back to his, his wife. David should have seen this and humbled himself, yet he would not. It wasn't until many months later when Nathan came to him that he was finally convicted and humbled himself. You know, the longer we entertain sin in our lives, the longer you entertain sin, the firmer its grip becomes on our hearts and the more severe the treatment has to be to remove it. Think of it this way. It's like a bolt on the bottom of your vehicle, exposed to the salt, to the rain, to all the weather. As time goes on, the longer that vehicle spends in the elements, the longer that bolt has salt on it, the harder it will be to remove that bolt. The more pressure, the longer the bar, the more heat you need to apply in order to get that bolt free. That's what sin is like in our hearts the longer we entertain it. Verse 8 says, The sailors told, asked Jonah now, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? 
Where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? The questions, in a sense, come in rapid fire. They've found the guilty party and they have no doubt this catastrophe is because of him. And they want to know why. Why has this happened? These guys have lost everything and their lives are now on the line. And they're looking at Jonah as the culprit. Well, Jonah, he's got absolutely nowhere to run from here. He's stuck on this ship, this boat in the storm with these sailors looking at him. But the answer he gives them is shocking. Perhaps not to you and I, but it would have been shocking to them. He says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah tells these men, his nationality, and his God. But notice, this is no ordinary Gentile God, pagan God. This one doesn't just rule over the sea. This one doesn't just rule over the heavens. It doesn't just rule over the land. No, this God rules all creation. He's all supreme. The sailors come to realize this. Not only the sailors, but Jonah knew it as well. We need to notice in Jonah that he is a theologian. When you actually think through this, it kind of is shocking when you think about it. Jonah knew his theology, and yet he still could become so stubborn that he would harden his heart in un repentance. Later we'll see that his theology does shine through and the Lord uses it to bring him back in repentance. But right now we have a prophet, a theologian who has sinned so much that he just has hardened and calloused his hearts. In verse 10 it tells us that the sailors are exceedingly afraid these men are terrified. Their terror, in a sense, is almost unbearable. First they were afraid earlier, but now they are exceedingly afraid. It's not because of the storm this time, however. Nor is it some petty pagan god, as we already said. No, they've come to realize that this is the living God. This is why they are so afraid. They can't run from him. If it was just a god of the land, maybe they could run somewhere else. They can't row from him. If he was just a god from the, over the sea, they could maybe row to shore and be safe. They can't even grow wings and fly from him because he's not just a god of the heavens or the god of the sea and the land. He's the god of the heavens. They can go nowhere to escape this living God. And now they find themselves on this boat with this man who has sinned against this God and they would have been terrified that they were guilty by association. And that now they themselves would be under God's wrath. These guys understood the insanity of what Jonah was doing. I mean, run from God. What are you thinking trying to run from this God? You must be out of your mind. 
What about Jonah? Well, he's got nothing to say. Not a word. No good word to these sailors. He didn't stand up to say, listen, I've sinned. I repent. I humble myself before the Lord. He will be gracious to us. There's no repentance. Did you notice he couldn't even answer their question about his occupation? He didn't tell them he was a prophet. Isaiah 59, 2 says that our sins have made a separation between us and our God. Jonah has become so calloused, so hardened, he refuses to repent. We could ask, what's the problem with Jonah's heart? How would we avoid this condition? How should Jonah have avoided this condition? Well, I think the answer is in chapter 2. Although we don't want to run off to chapter 2 already before we get there, it's worth just looking very briefly at verse 7. Notice that Jonah says, My prayer comes to your, into your holy temple. Lord willing, in two weeks when we get to this passage, we'll see that Jonah is thinking of the heavenly temple where Christ is. He's looking at Christ in chapter 2. This is always the problem when we sin. We fail to keep our eyes on Christ. And rather than looking to Christ, we begin to look to ourselves, the circumstances around us, and we become rebellious. Jonah had taken his eyes of Christ, and he would not humble himself. And yet, in God's grace, God continues to pursue him. We see that the storm worsens in verses 3, 11 through 13. The men said to him, What shall we do to you that the storm may quiet down for us? It was apparent something had to be done. Either Jonah's got to repent or there's got to be some form of punishment. At least that's the way these men were thinking. The storm just keeps getting worse. It was bad when it started, but now the Lord has poured on even more. God keeps pursuing his child. These men realize that God will have his way even if the ship has to sink. God must be shown to be sovereign. And so Jonah says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Here we have the idea of hurl again. God hurled the storm, the sailors hurled the cargo. Jonah says, pick me up and hurl me in. Do it intentionally. We might ask you, well, what's going on? Is Jonah advocating human sacrifice here or something? No, no, Jonah's not advocating human sacrifice. Rather, Jonah knows that sin deserves death. And yet when someone has gone so far down into sin... They can convince themselves that they are 
too bad to be forgiven. Or perhaps it could be that they would rather bear their own sin than look to the one who bears sin for his people. We can harden our hearts so much that we simply don't want to acknowledge our sin. And yes, God must be just. Sin must be paid. God can't just judge on a curve and close his eyes to sin. But that's the beauty of the cross, the beauty of Christ. God doesn't have to judge on a curve. God could uphold his perfect justice and his mercy all at the same time at Calvary. This is what Jonah was forgetting. Or if he was for not forgetting, he was intentionally ignoring. He knows God is a merciful God and slow to anger. He quotes it in chapter 4. And yet he would not repent but notice the sailors' reaction. Nevertheless, they rowed hard to get back to dry land. These guys are unwilling to go along with Jonah's plan and throw him over the edge of the boat. The idea here is that they, they dug in, they put their back to it as much as they possibly could. They rowed as hard as they could. They gave it all they could all they had. It was intense that they could not. For the storm grew more and more tempestuous against them. These guys would have been afraid that God was going to punish them if they threw Jonah overboard. After all, if God was going to pursue Jonah simply because he ran away, what would happen if they would throw him overboard? They'd be guilty of his blood. They'd still be in the same position then, at the mercy or the wrath, we should say, of God. But we've walked through this already. The storm has gotten increasingly bad. They are simply at their wits end. They have nowhere else to go. They can't even get back to dry land no matter how hard they try. So these men do exactly what Jonah refused to do. They pray. The text says, therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Maybe if you have a King James Version at home, and I should have maybe written it down in here, but read this prayer in the King James it's far more emphatic and, and desperate. It's closer to what the original sounds like. There is absolute desperation. They've got, you can hear it in the words. They've got nowhere else to go. You know, the problem with humanity is pride. We think, I can do it. I can row out of this. I can make it. 
I can choose God, or maybe I can overcome this sin. I'll just do this and this and this and this. No, you can't. There is no salvation until you're where the sailors were. Oh, Lord, you have done as you pleased. I can do nothing. Lord, save me. There, there's no salvation until you see your complete and utter helplessness and cast yourself into the arms of the merciful God. Only then, only then, when we humble ourselves, do we enjoy communion with God. Notice that the storm here in verse 14 and 16 ends. It's over. These men, they pick up Jonah and they hurl him into the sea. There was nothing else for them to do. They simply threw themselves to God's mercy. I want you to just stop and think about this picture for a minute. There's these sailors, and you, I'm sure, have seen videos or movies where sailors are on a ship in a storm. The waves are crashing over the side of the ship. They're staggering here and there, holding onto whatever they can, running around trying to throw cargo overboard while they're being washed about by the waves. Casting lots in that condition. Trying to speak to each other over the roar of the storm. Praying in those conditions. It would have been terrifying. It would have been chaos. And there's Jonah, silent. The only thing he can say is, throw me over the edge of the boat. No good word, no gospel message. You know, we could make a parallel to our day, couldn't we? Here's the world in absolute chaos, running around in darkness. They don't know where to go. They're desperate here we are. We have the gospel message. We have the good news. We can live in peace with Christ. The question we got to ask is, do we have a good word for this world? Or maybe we are sinning and running from the Lord and we can't say a word. And yet, despite Jonah, the Lord works miraculously for these men. God responds to their cry, and the storm ceases its raging. They receive mercy only because they cried out to the only one who could save. We can think of Matthew 8 and the disciples crying out to Christ. Unlike Jonah, these men had seen enough. 
One commentator said, we never feel Christ to be real until we feel him to be necessary. You know, if you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, you need to go where the sailors were. You need to humble yourself and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of all your sins. And perhaps you're a child of God tonight and you've wandered from the Lord. You, you keep sinning. You keep going to Tarshish and Joppa and to that ship. Perhaps you keep opening that screen and looking at images you shouldn't. Perhaps you're stubborn and refuse to obey your parents, to honor them. Perhaps you don't give the wages honestly to your employees, whatever it may be. You need to humble yourself and call upon the Lord for his mercy. Notice that here they are filled with fear. It's not just ordinary fear, it's exceeding fear. It's the same kind of fear that we see in Mark's account of the disciples fearing the Lord after the storm is calmed. This is the third time we read of the sailors' fear. First they feared the storm, then they feared the wrath of God, but now they fear God because of his mercy. Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snare of death. This is true fear, gospel fear. It's based on the knowledge. They've seen what their need was. They've humbled themselves. They see God's mercy. They throw themselves on his grace. And this fear, this gospel fear produces Worship. We see it there in the end of verse 16. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. There was no delusion in these men's minds. They knew this was the living God. He had revealed himself to them in a special way. And they are determined now to worship this God, not their gods who they worshipped before. They realize those are false gods. We don't know anything else of these sailors after this. But there's no reason for us to think that they did not seek out how to worship God. So you might ask, well, what about Jonah? I mean, we don't see repentance here in chapter 1. He seems to still be as hard as he was a verse before, and now he's in the water. But there's hope for Jonah. You know, we can often read a passage like this and just think, man, God's really hard on him. You know, God's wrath is just being poured out on Jonah. But we'd be better off to think that this is the love of God pursuing Jonah. Think of the lost sheep in Luke 15, or the lost coin. The shepherd leaves the 99, chases after that one sheep. This is the love of God. Think of your own life. 
How many times have you not sinned against the Lord, even this week? And yet the Lord again and again comes after us. You're here today, aren't you? You're here to worship him. You're here to hear his word, to hear his law, to hear of Christ. The Lord is pursuing you to bring you in again, to remind you of his love. As I said in the beginning, it speaks to God's sovereign salvation despite our own wickedness. God will not allow a single one of his elect children who've been redeemed and bought by the blood of Christ to be lost. Not a single one. If you think about this, this is an enormous comfort for you and I. We'd like to think that we're just going to coast on to glory without ever sinning against the Lord. That's not the case. If it was up to our own condition, we would never make it to glory. Yet here in this passage, we are reminded that God will pursue us he will preserve us and bring us into glory. And if he needs to, he will move heaven and earth so that he does not lose a single child. Think about that. That is the love of God. He is willing to intervene in nature, in all of creation, so that your soul, my soul, bought by the blood of Christ, will be secured for eternal glory. That's our God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for your love and your mercy that you do not lose a single one of your children. You do not abandon us in our own wickedness. You do not abandon us when we are stubborn and hard-hearted. When we run and rebel, Father, you in your grace pursue. You chase after us. And if you must, you will move heaven and earth to turn us around, to bring us home. We thank you for your love. For, Father, we feel it in ourselves, the pride of our own hearts, the stubbornness to go the other direction. And yet, Lord, you will not abandon us Father, we pray that we would not be stubborn like Jonah, but that we'd hear you calling to us to repent, that we would see before the storm has to get bad, Lord, that we would humble ourselves. Father, we pray that if there are any here or even listening online, who have never known you, 
that they would humble themselves like the sailors, that they would see by your powerful spirit working in them that they need Jesus Christ, that they would cast themselves on your mercy. We pray, Father, that there are any of your children here stubbornly living in sin. Whatever sin it may be, that you would pursue them. Father, even if their pursuit must be, must be painful, that you would not abandon them, but that you would pursue after them and bring them back. Father, we can all think of loved ones who have left the church, friends, family, children, siblings, who have walked away from Christ. We pray, Father, that you would pursue them in your mercy that you would bring them back to the church again, that you would bring them back to Christ, that they would see their sinfulness, humble themselves, looking to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. We thank you, Father, for your love, your abiding love to us. And we pray this in Christ's name alone. Amen.